Well, good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you. My name is Tim, and it's my privilege to finishing to finish off the series to uh, explore the ending of 2 Samuel and to sort of get into the groove of it this week. I typed into Google best movie endings of all time. Uh, a list of 33 came up. Now, I'm not much of a movie buff, so I hadn't seen the majority of them, but I did recognize three. And I'm going to tell you about those three and what the endings were. And so in advance, apologies if like I ruin the... Ed- <laughs> If I ruin the ending, but these are like 15 to 30-year-old movies, so I think it's your fault if you haven't seen it yet, okay? But number one, Sixth Sense. Uh, Bruce Willis, child psychologist working with a young kid played by Haley Joel Osment who says he can see dead people. Now, Bruce Willis isn't sure. You go through the whole movie, can he, can he not? By the end of the movie, it turns out, surprise, Bruce Willis is one of those dead people that this kid can see the whole time. Because he didn't survive the break and enter at the start of the movie, so he's been dead. All right, second one, Inception. Am I right? Am I right? Yeah. Uh, Great movie, all about dreams within dreams within dreams. Now, it gets a little trippy. And so the lead character, Hayley, uh, not Hayley Joel Osment, that was the previous one, Leonardo DiCaprio, he's got a spinning top totem, which when he spins, if it topples over, he's in reality. If it doesn't topple over, he's still in a dream. So at the end of the movie, he's just been on this massive sort of dream journey, comes back to reality, and then he spins the spinning top. But before he sees it topple over, he sees his kids running towards him. He gets up, goes, gives him a big hug. And then the final scene of the movie is it cuts back to the spinning top. It's still spinning. And then there's this brief wobble. And the question is, is it about to topple over or is it not? Is he in reality? Is he in a dream? Who knows? So good. <laughs> Third, our Usual Suspects. Uh, This is the older one. You know, the bulk of the movie uh, takes place in uh, this police station where uh, a character, I think his name is Verbal or something, but he's played by Kevin Spacey. And uh, he's a character who's got a uh, a shriveled hand and he walks with a limp. And the whole time they're asking him or interrogating him about this uh, evil crime lord called Kaiser Soze. And he tells the story, tells his version of events. And at the end of the movie, he's released. He walks out of the police station. And as he does, he sort of kicks out his leg, no more limp, stretches out his hand, no more shriveled hand. And a fax comes through to the police station with Kevin Spacey's face on it. He's the man all along. Endings can make or break a story. First time you read 2 Samuel chapter 24, it kind of feels in some ways like it should be on a list of the 33 worst story endings of all time. I say that because, you know, for all the highs of this story, the great moments that 2 Samuel has had, 2 Samuel 24 feels like the ultimate anticlimax. I mean, why finish on a point of administration? It's a census for crying out loud. And then 70,000 people die as a result. And so not only does it raise all sorts of questions for us, right, when you're trying to tie threads together, but it also just frankly seems a little random. The thing is, the more I've read 2 Samuel 24 this week, the more I've actually come to grow and to love and to appreciate this ending. And I'm going to tell you why kind of as we go through. But my prayer as we work our way through the story this morning, because that's mostly just what I want to do, is that you're going to come to love it too. Now, I want you to love it not just from a literary perspective, right? We're not a book club. Um, but that you would actually come to love this 
ending because of the encouragement and the hope that it provides uh, for those of us who trust in Jesus. Now, uh, just as a reminder, uh, this is our third week in which we are looking at the epilogue of this book. It's an epilogue of five chapters. No, what is it? Four chapters. But we've sort of broken it up into three because it's got this structure. And so we've been working our way from the inside to the outside. So three weeks ago, we looked at uh, number three, chapter 22. That was Charles. Then Matt last week, kind of next with the, the mighty men. Today, we're looking at the outside. So one and five there, chapter 21, chapter 24. We, for what it's worth, are only going to focus in on chapter 24, uh, but the parallel, whoops, the parallel, uh, just take me back to a generic slide if you can. The parallel is in uh, chapter 21. And so in chapter 21, Israel suffers a famine because of the sin of King Saul. In today's chapter, uh, Israel is going to suffer a plague because of the sin of King David. And so really both of these uh, chapters are exploring the sin of Israel's kings, the suffering it brings on the people, and then uh, the way that that is sort of alleviated or um, diverted through sacrifices of atonement. So that's kind of um, what these two chapters are exploring. But as I say, we're going to focus exclusively on 24 today. And the way I want to do is really just to work our way through the story under three headings. Uh, number one, sin. Number two, wrath. Number three, atonement. Sin, wrath, atonement. I'm going to work our way through the story and hopefully by the end you love it just as much as I do. So number one, David's sin. Take us to verse two if you can and then I'll take back over. Thank you. It says, the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. Right, in the ancient world, a king would typically conduct a census for one or two reasons. Uh, the first reason a king might do a census is really for tax purposes. Uh, this probably is why Caesar Augustus does a uh, census around the time of Jesus' birth. You'll know Jesus' parents ended up in Bethlehem because there was a census. That's probably why Caesar does his census. The second reason you might do a census is for the purposes of either counting or often more likely um, for the purposes of uh, building an army through, the through conscription. In other words, they weren't really counting all the people, they're just counting the fighting aged people. That seems to be what's going on here. The way the NIV translation gives it to us, he wants to enroll the fighting men. It's not actually what it says, it just says number the people, but I think it is helpful in kind of guiding our, our reading of what's actually going on. Problem is, David's army commander, Joab, doesn't think this is such a good idea. And so in verse 3, he comes back and says, But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? Now, this is a fascinating response from a guy like Joab. If you've been with us for this series, you'll be kind of wondering. So for me, uh, Joab's been a fascinating guy because up until now, I didn't think he had a conscience. Uh, maybe he was born with one, but somewhere along the lines it died because this guy has gotten all, up to all sorts of bad stuff. For example, he's assassinated Abner right after David made a treaty with him. That was back in chapter 3. He's then 
covered over um, for David his sin with Bathsheba by murdering her husband, Uriah. And then he's also assassinated or murdered in cold blood, David's son, Absalom. So this is the kind of stuff that this guy's got up to. And so if what David is asking for here has been enough to both resurrect his dead conscience and then prick it, something is clearly not quite right about the request. What is it? Well, we'll still wait and see. But we keep reading because it turns out that the king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. Whole thing takes about 10 months, nine months and 20 days. And when they come back to David, they report there are 800,000 fighting men in Israel, 500,000 in Judah. So it's an army of 1.3 million. It's not too bad, really. But then uh, we get in verse 10, this surprising response. David was conscience stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Now, it's clear that David thinks he's done something wrong. And just as an aside, it's astonishing how great he thinks what he's done, uh, how wrong it was. And so just by way of comparison, uh, back in chapter 12, where David committed sin, adultery with Bathsheba, and then God sends Nathan the prophet to David. David responds by saying, I have sinned against the Lord. Here he says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, right? If adultery was just sin and this is now great sin, what, what's going on? Well, uh, it may well just be that David has something of a uh, you know, a more delicate conscience. Now I suspect that's part of it. But there does seem to be something that has gone wrong. So what is it? Well, uh, let's clear away some of the weeds. What, what's the problem not? The first thing to say is there's nothing uh, intrinsically wrong with David doing a census. And we know this because in Exodus, God actually explains to his people how to do a census if you're going to do one. And then the book of Numbers actually both starts and then ends with God commanding Moses to do a census. So there's nothing wrong with counting the people. So what is wrong? Well, again, the truth is we're not actually told. It is clear that both God and David think David's done something wrong. We're just never quite told specifically what it is. But I think we could probably guess. I think we could probably guess as to what the issue is. And I think it's maybe a combination of two things. Number one, pride. Uh, David is trying to take pride and rejoice in the size of what is built. Now, back in chapter 7, God came to David and promised to establish his house forever. David's response in chapter 7 was this, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me thus far? David says, I was a little shepherd boy in the fields and you brought me to be king. Who am I? Uh, That was humble David. Uh, Now, this is big shot David. This is David a couple years on. He wants to build the army and wants to say, yeah, this is what I have built. Look at what my hands have done. So I suspect there's a little bit of pride going on. I also suspect there's a lack of faith. That is, he wants to count the army 
because he wants to know how they'll fare if they're attacked. In other words, the same David who used to say, you know, it doesn't matter how big the giant is because the battle belongs to the Lord, now says, you know what, that was when I was young and naive. Uh, Now I've grown up, now I've got bills to pay, now I've actually got responsibility, and so it's all going to come down to the size of this army. Somebody get me the figure. Again, I suspect it's a combination of both of those things, pride and a lack of faith. In terms of why I think that, there's a few reasons. The first is kind of the internal evidence of chapter 24. We're not going to look at it because I think you looked at it in your community groups this week. It's verse 3, what Joab says to David. But there's also sort of a broader reason, and that, that is how what happens in chapter 24 of 2 Samuel kind of parallels, ironically, something that actually happens much earlier in 1 Samuel. You see, there, there is tragic irony of what happens here in that really David is repeating Israel's sin from the opening of 1 Samuel. If you were with us last year in term one, we looked at this. And so 1 Samuel opens with Israel rejecting God as their security They say, we don't want you as our king. No, no, we want a king like all the nations to lead us into battle. That's where we're going to find our security. And then 2 Samuel finishes with David effectively doing the same thing. He says, God, I don't need to rely on you as my security. I I want an army. That's going to be our security who leads us into battle. In other words, the irony is that not a whole lot has changed. Uh, Israel's king and Israel as a people are just the same. And so really to repeat a phrase we've heard so many times after the last couple of weeks, you finish the book longing for a better king, a humble king who will entrust himself to the Lord and never lose faith no matter how great the giant. Before we move on, though, uh, I want to spend a brief moment applying this to ourselves. I'll go first. You're welcome. Uh, We started this church eight years ago with 10 of us in a living room. And when you've got no people, no money, and a vision to see thousands of disciples throughout Sydney and beyond, you can't help but realize, okay, if anything at all is going to come through here, God's going to need to get to work. And so we pray, we rely on God, we're expecting, God, would you do a miracle here? Eight years on, it's not always as easy to rely on God. Grace City, in my weaker moments, I am prone to pride and a lack of faith, uh, finding my joy and my security in our Sunday attendance and the size of our bank balance, rather than the grace and mercy of God, which has been so clear throughout the whole journey. What about you? Where are you tempted to find your joy, to take pride in, and to find your security? Is it in the size or the shape of your house? I bought that, or we built that. Is it in your bank balance? Uh, Do you every now and again find yourself just opening the app and looking at the number and going, maybe these days you're a bit scared, but (laughs) looking at it going, it's not bad. I built that. Uh, Is it your job or your accolades? Is it your intelligence? Is it the way you look? What is it that you are tempted to look at and find pride and take security in? Grace City, none of these are bad things in and of themselves. 
But when they become the source of our pride and security, they're not only misplaced, it's also sinning against the Lord. Which is actually a major problem. Because as we're going to see next, God takes sin very seriously. Number one, David's sin. Number two, God's wrath. God's wrath, wrath. Verse 11 and 12. As before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord came to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. It's like a really bad genie experience. uh, Because as you read on, he's got three options. Option one is three years of famine. Option two is going to be three months of running away from their enemies. Option three is three days of plague. Uh, David's like, "Uh, can I go with option four? Like none of the above? Uh, He responds, verse 14, David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. At the end, uh, he says, look, anything but option two. Um, David knows from experience that God's mercy is great. He's taken away his sin once before, so he says, God, would you do it again? I, I don't, God, you choose which option you think is best. Just don't let it be number two. We don't want to fall into the hands of the enemy. Let us fall into your hands. And so verse 15, the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. Uh, Just to give you some perspective, 70,000 is about the number of people that the atomic bomb killed when it fell on Nagasaki. In other words, as a result of David's sin, the atomic wrath of God fell on the people of Israel and 70,000 people died. The judgment was swift, it was severe, and as we'll see in a moment, it left David trembling. But I expect it will also raise a whole range of questions for us. At least I hope it raises some serious questions for us. Like number one, how is that fair? If you've never read this story before, I really hope you're asking that question. Otherwise, you haven't actually been paying attention. Because so far, the way we've told the story, at least, makes it sound like 70,000 people, innocent people, die because of something David does. Now... Um, it's not quite what has happened and I've told the story this way for a reason because you'll notice if you're paying attention I skipped verse 1 when we began the reason I did that is because verse 1 raises all sorts of questions so we will explore those but it at least answers this question for us so let's go and take a look at verse 1 weren't the people innocent? Right? how is it fair? well verse 1 reads again the anger of the Lord burned against Israel And he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Now, we're not told why God is angry with Israel. Though they've certainly given him plenty reasons to do so. Uh, Maybe it was because they sided with Absalom against David, the Lord's anointed. Maybe it was because they sided with Sheba against the Lord's anointed in David. Maybe it was one of the other reasons. Again, we just don't know. Uh, But what is clear is that they've done something to provoke God's anger, which means they're not innocent. In other words, yes, they died as a result of David's sin, 
But they're not just innocent bystanders who got unlucky, wrong place, wrong time. No, David's sin was actually part of God's broader plan to bring judgment on the people of Israel for their sin. Which raises a whole series of other questions, doesn't it? Like number two, did God lead David into sin? After all, look again at verse one. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he, that is the Lord, incited David against them, saying, go and take the census. What's up with that? The book of James says that God cannot be tempted, and nor does he tempt anyone else. But how do you make sense of a verse like this when it seems to imply that God has done exactly that? Well, uh, two things to say on this. The first is that David almost certainly does not hear those words, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. In other words, it, it, the word saying there is more a figure of speech. This is not the word of the Lord through the prophet Gad spoken to David. No, no, no. It's more a way of describing God as the sovereign ruler over all things, ensuring that all things happen according to his will. And the reason I say that, and I'm confident of it, is because of a second verse. Uh, you see, there is a parallel account to this account in 2 Kings 24, sorry, 2 Samuel 24. I suspect many of you looked at it in your community groups this week, but it's in 1 Chronicles 21. And this says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Now, in case you missed that, let's just put them both next to each other. 1 Samuel 24, this is our passage tells us, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he, that is God, incited David against them. 1 Chronicles 21 says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David. Well, that's confusing. Who is it? Is it God? Is it Satan? Is it both? Well, yeah, in, in some ways, the answer is both. It really just depends, however, who your focus is on. In other words, in 2 Samuel 24, the focus is on God, uh, the transcendent and sovereign ruler over all things, who is the ultimate cause of all things. And then in 1 Chronicles 21, the focus is on the secondary agent, Satan, whom God is actually able to use to bring about his good purposes. But that'll raise another question. So question number three, well... Why is David held responsible then? In other words, if God is sovereign over all this and he sends Satan to tempt him, then, then how come David is held responsible for what he does? Well, again, a few things you can say. Number one, the Bible is abundantly clear that humans always do what we most want to do. In other words, God's sovereignty will never override your decision to do what you want to do. will never force you to do something you don't want to do. That's not how God's sovereignty works. He is sovereign, but we always do what we most want to do. The Bible is very clear on that. Which is also why humans are always held responsible for their sin. So, for example, you notice David doesn't blame God or Satan for what he does. Look again at his words in verse 10. I'll just read the bolded bit. I have sinned greatly, 
in what I have done. They don't sound like the words of someone who's forced against his will to do the census. No, uh, David is held responsible for his sin because he listens to the voice of Satan and was lured into temptation by you know, his own evil desires. In other words, he does exactly what he wanted to do. Now, Grace City, uh, I know uh, if you tuned out, tune back in, I'll give you an illustration. Uh, I, I know this, it's all a bit of a mind bender, isn't it? We need our own spinning top totem at this point. <laughs> Help us make sense of it all. Uh, I'll give you an illustration. It's not perfect. If you push on it too hard, it'll all break down. But think of a river with a strong current flowing through a countryside. Uh, In one sense, the molecules and the fish in that river have the freedom to swim around and go anywhere they want to go. On the other hand, because of the current of the river and the banks either side of it, that river, those fish, those molecules, they are being directed to a very specific location on the countryside. Again, it's not perfect, so don't push on it too hard, but I think it it is helpful uh, to help us think through how this works. In one sense, yeah, we're free because each of us can make decisions and we often do listen to the temptation of Satan just like David does. We always do what we most want to do. But in another sense, God is sovereign and he is guiding all things to the exact point where he wants it to, to go. Let us return to the topic or the title of this second point, remember God's wrath, and ask another question about that. Uh, Maybe you've been wondering it. Isn't God's wrath here an overreaction? Isn't God's wrath an overreaction? It might be that you're here today uh, and you're finding it incredibly difficult to get beyond the atomic wrath of God. In other words, even if it may be the case that we don't exactly know what Israel has done to provoke it, surely 70,000 dead is an overreaction, isn't it? I will look, uh, I wish I had a neat answer for you on this one. But the truth is, I think it's going to get more complicated for us. Or it's going to get harder before it gets easier. I say that because... For the majority of this week, right up until about Thursday, I was convinced that when, I kind of just assumed that when David said to God, God, I don't know uh, which option to choose, you choose, that God went with option three and that he sent a plague on the people that lasted three days. In other words, I assumed the 70,000 was the death toll at the end of the full three days. I'm not so sure that's right anymore, because look with me at verse 16. It says, when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. Now, if it's just a matter of three days running its course... What's the whole point of that exchange? Or to put it differently, what does it mean that the Lord relented from the disaster? I think if we're going to take that seriously, we have to assume that God stepped in and stopped the plague before the end of the three days. Now, if you're like, oh, I reckon Tim's just reading too much into this. I have a Bible commentator. (laughs) (laughs) Hoorah. 
Uh, John Woodhouse agrees with me. Uh, <laughs> that's my ace. Uh, in his commentary on uh, verse 15, he writes this. The big surprise is going to be that the appointed time was probably not at the end of three days, verse 13, but significantly sooner, verse 16. In other words, Grace City, 70,000 wasn't an overreaction. It was an underreaction. The only reason the death toll wasn't greater was because David's instinct about God was right. Do you remember what he said? Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. The only reason more people didn't die was because God was merciful. So how many days did it last? Was it one? Was it two? I don't know, but it wasn't three. Now, I know there's plenty of us who are going to be still wrestling with this. Frankly, I'm still wrestling with it. And I I don't have a neat answer for you, but I, I want to leave you with this thought. If even the death of 70,000 people is an underreaction for sinning against God, then how righteous, pure, and holy must he be? The greater the crime, the greater the penalty. If the penalty is something like this, then my goodness, God must be far more holy, pure, and righteous than any of us could even comprehend. Question five. Because I do think that leads on to a fifth question. All right, so if David's sin was so bad, then why did God just stop it? The, the penalty, the, penalty the, the plague. If it's such a problem, why just intervene and say, you know what, actually, no thanks. Why does God stop it early? Uh, we're going to see the answer to that in our third point. Because what I want to suggest in the interest in the, in the theme of movies... Uh, our author has done something of an M. Night Shyamalan. Malana, la, 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 I don't know how to pronounce them. Maybe a Christopher Nolan. Uh, again, I'm not a movie buff. But uh, what he's done is, is in verse 16, he's actually given us a preview of what is going to happen without yet telling us about the events that brought it about. In other words, the reason that God stops the plague in verse 16 is because of what David is going to do in verse 25. So let me try and show you that to you. So we've done God's, we've done David's sin, we've done God's wrath. Let's now take a look at atonement or sacrifice of atonement. So we're going to jump into verse 17. And just in terms of the chronology, this is all happening before the whole stop, don't pass angel moment. Uh, Let's read it. Verse 17. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. Now, that's a massive prayer, and one we are going to come back to later. But in response to David's prayer, God sends the prophet Gad, and he says, hey, go and build an altar and sacrifice there on uh, on the the." A threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. Uh, now, because of what we've been told in verse 16, we know the significance of this place. David doesn't yet. But we know as a result of what's about to happen, God is going to tell the angel of destruction to stop. So verse 21, we read, so David arrives, Aaron says, why has my lord the king come to his servant? 
to buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. David is clear. That's why he's here. The angel hasn't stopped yet. He wants to stop it. He's going to make a sacrifice. Now, as we read before, Arona tries to give it for free. He says no. And so in verse 24 and 25, we read this. So David brought, sorry, bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. I love the way the author has constructed the narrative. Because uh, what you kind of, you know, you imagine it, the angel of destruction, he's brought plague on the countrysides and then he arrives about to strike Jerusalem. I don't know, is it day one, is it day two? We don't know, but he's at the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite, right at the moment that David is there. He's built the altar, he's made the sacrifice. He cries out to God, would you stop the plague? And that is the moment at which God sees the sacrifice and says to the angel, stop, stay your hand, enough is enough. Now don't misunderstand this. I'm not suggesting that David, off his own initiative, somehow manipulates God who really wants to destroy them using this sacrifice. Remember, who was it that told David to go build the altar? It's God. In other words, this whole thing is actually a picture of the grace and mercy of God. Remember, David said, let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. And so, yes, the sin has provoked God's anger. It has provoked his wrath, but God also is gracious and merciful. And so he sends his king to make atonement for sin that the people might be spared his wrath. God is merciful. And you know what? Uh, there is incredible significance to this precise location. In fact, what I'm about to show you is part of the reason that our author finishes to Samuel with this story. Because take a look at what goes on to be built in this precise location. It's uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. So this is fast forward. Then Solomon, we're told, began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite, the place provided by David. Don't you love that? The place where atonement was made and the destroying angel stopped in David's day was the place where Solomon, his son, built the temple. In other words, for the next thousand years, the people of Israel would offer sacrifices on the exact location as if to say, God, do it again. Stay your hand. Don't let us be consumed by your wrath. There's another point of significance, though, because did you notice in 2 Chronicles, we're told that this place is Mount Moriah. Uh, Mount Moriah is only referenced one other time in the whole Bible. It's Genesis 22, where God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Uh, Abraham naturally is pretty confused, but he goes to Mount Moriah. And just as he lifts his hand and he's about to kill his son, God says, enough. Withdraw your hand. And then he provides a substitute. 
to die in his place. In other words, this mountain, Mount Marah, the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite, has incredible significance in the Bible. This is the place where first with Abraham, then with David, then again and again with the temple, that God has delivered his people through sacrifice and shown them mercy. See, this is, I hope you're starting to get anticipation of where this is going because uh, this is why I think the, the book is so incredible. Yes, uh, it reinforces the message of the whole book. We are longing and waiting for a better king, a humble king who will entrust himself to the Lord no matter the size of the giant. Yes, it, it lays the foundation for the laying of the temple, the building of the temple, where for the next thousand years, the people of Israel, Israel will cry out for God to have mercy. But it also pushes us further beyond that into the pages of the New Testament. Because look again with me at verse 17. It says, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. As David looked at the devastation of the angel, he couldn't bear it. And so he begs God, let your hand fall on me and my family. Now that prayer haunts the rest of the Old Testament. Because on the one hand, the devastation stopped and God's wrath was averted through sacrifice. On the other hand, the fact that they built the temple in that location kind of implies that God's wrath was never truly satisfied. It was only diverted, was deferred. And so the hand of the Lord remains over Jerusalem. There was a sentence of three days that still needed to be served. And so year after year, the people wait. As year after year, the Lord directs the river of history until a certain member of David's family would come. And then Jesus came. Uh, not just a son of David, but also a son of God. His only son, whom he loved. Unlike David, he was the humble king who entrusted himself to God despite the size of the giant. So when he saw the Lord's hand ready to fall on his people, he said, enough. I am the good shepherd, and these are but my sheep. I said, Lord, let your hand fall upon me. And so Grace City had a spot not far from Mount Moriah, not far from the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. The full atomic wrath fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he died upon the cross. Uh, not an overreaction, but certainly not an underreaction. But the full weight of God's wrath against the sin of people like you and I who would come to trust in him. Grace City, that's what we're going to remember this coming Friday. It's called Good Friday, not because it was necessarily good for Jesus, but because it was good for us. Because on Good Friday, Jesus guaranteed that the Lord would indeed be merciful should we fall into his hands if we trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And then on Sunday, we're going to celebrate that the three-day sentence was served, that the wrath was extinguished, and therefore those who trust in Christ have nothing to fear and said we too can be raised just like he was. 
So let me close. As I close, I simply want to ask you two questions. Number one, have you trusted in Jesus yet? Uh, this passage reminds all of us that God's wrath is great and not something to be trifled with. Uh, now, that's not because he's flippant and he can't control his anger. Remember, it's because he's holy and he's righteous. Uh, remember, if even the death of 70,000 people was an underreaction for sinning against him, how great, how righteous, how pure, how holy must he be? But we've also seen that though his mercy, so that though his wrath is great, his mercy is more. And so I want to encourage you, don't make the same mistake as David. Don't, don't find your joy and your security in your house or your bank balance or your job or your accolades or your intelligence or the way you look. Put your trust in Jesus and his death on your behalf. The author of Hebrews says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it is, but not if your trust is in his son. And so as we finish the book, let me encourage you to trust in King Jesus, the greater David that this whole book has been pointing us towards. Second question. Are you offering your life to God as a living sacrifice? Are you offering your life to God as a living sacrifice? See, when Arona offers David uh, the sacrifices and the threshing floor for free, David comes back with this great line. He says, no, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. No, I'm not going to sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. It just wouldn't be right. I think there's a beautiful sentiment in that, and I think it's one we ought to emulate. Now, in David's case, he was making a sacrifice of atonement. We don't need to do that because Jesus has already done that on our behalf and it cost him everything. But the Bible does say in light of that, in view of his mercy, that we ought to offer our lives to God as living sacrifices. And so as I close, maybe you want to ask yourself, are you offering sacrifices that cost you nothing? Does your worship cost you to give him your first and your best or your last and your leftovers. Grace City, Jesus gave his life for you. The least we can do is live our lives for him. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that in your mercy you sent your king to make atonement through his death on the cross, that we might be spared from your wrath. Uh, forgive us for our sin, and we ask that you might help us to live all our days offering our lives to you as living sacrifices. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.